Welcome back. So the COP28 summit is underway in Dubai. There is a considerable Canadian delegation, including a number of individuals representing Alberta at this climate summit. And it comes at an interesting moment, obviously, as we really seem to be in the midst of a transition here. Uh, but how long is that transition going to take? What is it going to look like in the meantime? You know, as we find uh, better ways of making uh, fossil fuel development more efficient technology to help reduce emissions, what does it mean for oil and gas? And in particular, what does it mean for everybody who works in these industries, whose livelihood depends on all of this, right? There's a lot of uncertainty as to what it's going to mean in the years ahead. And uh, it, it could potentially be a difficult transition, but maybe that needs to be a big focus is what that looks like and what it means to those whose lives are impacted by that. So there has been a lot of conversation around these issues. And like I say, it, it's kind of a pivotal moment, a bit of a crossroads we're at, if you will. Uh, and that's the focus uh, of the new documentary that uh, our next guest was involved in. In fact, is going to be screened, uh, presented to uh, an audience of thousands at COP Dubai, uh, in, or COP 28 in Dubai. Uh, the documentary is called Without Leaving Anyone Behind. This is more than just a documentary. It brings the global community together through thoughtful conversation on energy transition. You can read more at withoutleavinganyonebehind.com. Joining us on the line uh, to talk more about these issues, uh, one of the driving forces uh, behind this documentary, uh, Harry Vradenberg is a faculty professor, strategy and sustainability, the Haskins School of Business at the U of C here in Calgary. Uh, Harry, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, so first of all, give us a bit of the background uh, on this project and, and you know, what was the spark for all of this to begin with? Well, spark for all of this, I've been working at this uh, not just for a year or two, but for decades. Uh, that's what I, the research I do as a, as a professor and that's the kind of courses that I've been teaching in our MBA program at the business school as well as at the School of Public Policy. And uh, it was during the uh, pandemic that I was working on writing a book and I got thinking about, you know, we need to reach out to a, a broader audience because one thing that was bothering me was how polarized this whole discussion of energy transition has become. Yeah. And secondly, what was bothering me is how provincial or how localized the discussion has become without taking a, a broader global perspective. So I, uh, I reached out to uh, my friend Sylvester Ndumbi, who's a filmmaker. I'd been in one of his earlier films uh, some seven, eight years earlier. And we got talking and said, well, you know, let's, let's do a documentary film. And I've spent most of my career writing academic uh, scholarly papers. Uh, I've got 60 or 70 of them. I've got close to 10,000 citations in the academic literature, but most people have never read any of this stuff. So the idea here was to let's get some of this stuff out in the open to a broader audience. Right. So what was the process then in, in pulling all of this together and, and telling these stories and going around the world to gather these stories? Yeah, and we we literally did go around the world. I like to say we went from Honolulu to London, from uh, Nairobi, Kenya, to Port of Spain, Trinidad and Tobago, from Harvard University to Oxford University, and from Sitka Roberts, Saskatchewan, to Squamish, British Columbia. So we traveled around to all these places. They're all people that I, I had already been in contact with. Many of them I had interviewed for research projects. Others are former students. Uh, many people have come from around the world to the University of Calgary uh, to get graduate degrees in, in energy, whether they're MBAs or, or, uh, or MSc degrees. And so I reached out to all of them, all the people I, I, I already knew. And then we traveled with a small crew and, uh, and, and partnered up with local crews in each of the locations we went to to get this broader perspective of what the energy transition might look like and also uh, how real is climate change itself is is that being felt 
Right. So it's interesting because we, we've got competing issues here. The climate change is a challenge, obviously. But when you talk about workers and you talk about people's livelihoods, we can't ignore that either. Right. So where, where is the balance? And, and I think that you, you nailed it there. That's exactly what the issue is. And sometimes in Alberta, it's, it's harder to see both sides at the same time. But one of my favorite interviews in the film is an interview I did with the energy minister of the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Trinidad and Tobago, in some ways, is kind of like Alberta. It's, it's very heavily focused on oil and gas uh, and petrochemicals. Uh, but they're also an island state, a twin island state in the Caribbean. And as the energy minister himself acknowledges, when he walks to work every day, he sees that the sea is coming up higher. They're regularly having flooding. Um, We go in uh, Trinidad to a place where villagers uh, who aren't very well off, whose homes have been washed into the sea. And so in countries like that, it's it's very apparent that this is a, a challenge, a dual challenge. On the one hand, climate change is very real. It has impacts. And on the other hand, we have our livelihoods. Uh, 80% of uh, of the uh, foreign exchange in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago comes from oil and gas and petrochemicals. So they can't exactly shut down the industry and say, oh, well, let's all go back to the village and, uh, and, 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 and turn our back on all this wealth because global markets for fossil fuels are still there. So where does technology come into play? And, and what did the, this journey tell you about, you know, the, the, the deployability at scale of this kind of technology or maybe how much further we need to go? Yeah, no, exactly. And one of the things that uh, I find sometimes frustrating is that when you see the debates, it's all or nothing. Everybody's the same. Um, you know, a common one that we hear is we need to, as quickly as possible, shut down the uh, the fossil fuel industry, the oil and gas industry, and we all need to switch to renewables. Right. Renewables are going to be a critical part of, of, of this energy change, uh, but it depends on where you are. Renewables works great. We spend time in Hawaii, particularly the island of Kauai, where within a few years they're going to be 100% renewable, mostly solar because they have endangered birds. They don't do much wind there. And energy storage, that is battery energy storage, pumped energy storage. So we look at what that looks like. That's in a small place like that where they don't have to compete with inexpensive natural gas or coal or, or, or oil. Um, but it also works in Alberta. We spend time looking at uh, renewables in Alberta where it's become quite competitive. And until recently, Alberta was the fastest growing jurisdiction in Canada in terms of renewables and energy storage. Um, but what's also very relevant is what are people, how do people make their living? And again, back to Trinidad and Tobago, or we spend time in East Africa and Kenya as well. One of my former students is in the film. East Africa has just invested the last 10, 15 years into infrastructure for developing uh, very attractive oil and gas uh, resources that they have there. Mm-hmm. And they've trained people. So a number of them have come to, to Calgary to be educated, the MBA level. So they've got this human and physical infrastructure and to be told now, you've got to shut this all down, again, go back to the village, is not going to happen. So what's really, in my view, going to mean what this, what this energy transition is going to mean is technology and policy are, are critical. So there are a number of technologies. Um, renewables is developing very quickly, lots of prospects there. But it's going to be a mix with other things as well. We're still going to see fossil fuels for a number of years yet, but we have to find ways to decarbonize the fossil fuels and to switch to other fuels which are by themselves decarbonized. So, for example, hydrogen is critically important. Hydrogen 
uh, with carbon capture, known as blue hydrogen, is very important right now, and it's something that we do already in, in Alberta. And over time, that's going to switch, in my view, to green hydrogen. That is hydrogen produced with renew- from renewables, from uh, hydro, from solar, from wind. So this is all this part of this transition. And a, a place like Alberta plays a role in that. It's a similar role to what Alberta has played historically. A lot of the new technologies in the energy space have come out of Alberta and out of Texas, but in many of them out of Alberta, yeah. directional drilling, uh, fracturing, rock fracturing, fracking. Those have all come out of here and then have been uh, disseminated around the world, uh, either through consultancy, technical consultancy, technical transfer or direct foreign investment by Canadian companies in different places in the world. And in my view, that is the future of a place like Alberta, to play that leading role in the world of being an energy developer, which then can be shared with places in the world, particularly those in the developing countries of what's known as the Global South. That's the Africa, the Caribbean, the South Americas, the the Asias. I guess part of the question becomes, you know, how quickly can we do all of this? And that's where you run into a lot of disagreement that it needs to happen sooner rather than later. And we really need to, to push to make this happen. Others who say, OK, let's let's be careful and take our time with this and make sure we do it right. I, I don't know if there is necessarily a right answer to that question. But what does the timeline look like, do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think timing is important. We need to move fairly quickly. We've been quite slow to get going on this We. We probably should have been starting this 10, 20 years ago, but we didn't, yeah. and that's, that's reality. So we do need to move fairly quickly, but we mustn't hurry as well, because the world you know, is, is prosperous in many places because of fossil fuels, because of oil and gas. Places in the world like Africa are stepping up to this level right now. They, they, they can't turn back. So we have to find ways of moving forward that is not going to... Uh, dispossess people uh, from 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 prosperity, and that's what's not leaving anyone behind. And so, the, the actual timing—it's hard to say. Uh, we're all talking 2050, net zero by 2050. But at the same time, with technology development, there are sometimes step changes. There are sometimes things that suddenly make everything change, like solar solar uh, energy, solar uh, power. Uh, I, I remember teaching classes not long ago, seven, eight years ago. It was just not economic. It just wasn't happening. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the cost of solar-generated power came down by 90%, and that's changed the whole renewable energy industry. I suspect we'll find similar things with carbon capture and storage, um, other technologies, and other, you know, we, we in the film we talk, talk about some of the very new technologies as well, but something else that came out of Alberta is something called direct air capture. And it's direct air capture of CO2, which can then be put back into the ground from whence it came, or can be turned into synthetic fuel. So that can be used in cars and trucks as they are uh, existing today, as they're engineered today. Not a new electric car, but cars that, are, that you have right now can be, could be fueled by synthetic fuel from direct air capture. So we explore all those things in the film. And how long is that going to take? I don't think... You know, with, with, with one or two major sort of technology um, leaps, we could get there quicker. But it may take a couple of decades as well. Yeah. Well, and I want to ask you, partly about the reaction so far to the film, but also, you know, the fact that it will be shown a COP28 and, and what you hope comes from that. Because I think the World Petroleum Congress, it, it was it was screened at and, and some other venues too. But, you know, it's, it's a big audience at COP28. 
Yes, and actually, it's, it's, I find it kind of nice and, and, and uh, rewarding that we were both at the World Petroleum Congress and now at COP28, the big climate uh, conference in Dubai. Uh, the response has been very positive. And again, what we're trying to do here is to bridge that polarization uh, that we've seen. And I think we're helping people see uh, things in a little bit more globally and a little bit more um, less polarized, shall we say. And I think that's it's been very positive. We've also screened at film festivals. We were at the Calgary International Film Festival. We're currently all of the month of December. We're at the British Columbia Environmental Film Festival, uh, which also has a streaming component. So you can watch it uh, on, uh, on on the British Columbia in Environmental Film Festival all this month. Uh, and we've also done screenings at uh, universities. Uh, we've done in-house things at various uh, companies. And the response has been very positive. And I think what people find is that it's refreshing that it's a different kind of perspective from what they've heard. Because yeah. what they've heard, it's sort of right, left, polarized, whatever. And that's not what we're about. And it's very much a global perspective. Yeah. I'm also working with a brilliant um, filmmaker, uh, Sylvester Ndombi, is um, African-Canadian, originally um, from Africa. He was born in Congo, spent his childhood in uh, uh, in, in southern Africa and came to Canada as a, as a teenager and uh, has a studio here in town. And people are sometimes surprised that this is coming out of out of Calgary. Um, but but we indeed are. Absolutely. Well, it's a fascinating project, an important one at that as well. Without leaving anyone behind, .com is the website. Uh, much more there. But, uh, Harry, thank you so much. Make some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Okay, thanks very much to you. Well, yeah, we've been using uh, April Wine songs as uh, our return music through the day, uh, marking the uh, passing of uh, Miles Goodwin. Uh, singer-songwriter, one of the founders of the band April Wine, uh, died yesterday uh, at the age uh, of 75. So some really sad uh, news from, from the world of music. And just hearing all these different songs and some of the big hits, and you see what a, a diverse band they were. It came from some of the different perspectives uh, of the members on, on music. Right, so a really unique, uh, you know, set of songs uh, that the band had and albums over the years, uh, but they were remarkably successful. Uh, over 10 million records sold, uh, inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 2010. They came together in 1969. Uh, really, kind of broke through in 1972. Uh, they became the first Canadian band to to sell more than 100,000 albums in Canada. And they had some breakthrough success uh, in the U.S. as well. Now, earlier this year, uh, Miles Goodwin, in fact, announced that uh, he was going to step away from performing and touring with the band. And we had an opportunity to speak with him at the time. And one of the things he talked about was kind of the longevity of the band and its music, that that support from the fans is still there after all these years. Oh, well, that's really easy. That's, uh, radio has been very good to April 1, and they continue to be good to April 1. Uh, music, April 1's music is played uh, everywhere in Canada all year round. Uh, played in, in a lot of lot of parts of the United States still. Mm -hmm. uh, classic rock now, of course, is not in the top 40 or anything, but uh, current top 40. But just classic radio and, th uh, you know, radio, and, and thanks to them, the continued play, um, people, you know, three generations really uh, are into the songs that they hear on the radio, you know, and, and even the young people that I see, you know, very young people, 
um, the love in April one, they know the words and you know, and all the rest of it. You see them singing along and you say, geez, they're only like 17 or 15 or something like that. It's crazy. <laughs> and they just love the music. And that's because they hear it on the radio. They heard it from their parents, uh, whatever. And, uh, and, uh, April one continues to be popular. Yeah, they certainly do. And so an opportunity to reflect on the impact they had. And they were really pioneers in a lot of ways when it came to, to Canadian rock and what is now referred to as, as the classic rock era. Uh, music journalist and publicist Eric Alper was, uh, in fact, a Miles publicist. Uh, you can read more at uh, his website, thatericalper.com, but joins us on the line here this afternoon. Eric, again, as mentioned, obviously, really, uh, really sad news, but we appreciate you making some time for us here today. Uh, always happy to talk to you. Uh, talking about you know the legacy and the impact of April Wine, not just their success in Canada, but as mentioned, you know just kind of how, in a lot of ways, that they were pioneers. Just talk a bit about the the influence and the impact they had. Yeah, you know, I, I I think in order to answer that, I think you know everybody has to go back to Nova Scotia um, and in the late '60s, where this is even before CanCon and the Canadian government kind of you know forced radio stations um, against their will, for the most part, um, to play Canadian songs. Um, it wasn't easy back then to get radio on board with this because the music industry and radio were so fine with bringing in worldwide talent and letting the audience decide. But, you know, when you're Miles Goodwin and you start a band with, um, you know, your friends and, you know, two brothers and then um, and then their cousin in David and Richie Henman and then their their cousin Jim, um, before MTV, before Much Music, before TikTok, the only way to do it was to play live. And you had to go from being awful to being great yeah. and winning a fan over one person at a time. And that's essentially what they did, playing every single high school, every single venue and arena and looking at social media in the last 24 hours, it seemed like they played a lot of high schools because people were remembering, you know, the fact that they played their cafeteria before that they broke it big with You Could Be a Lady um, back in 1972. And that's when the record label started calling and the gig started getting better and better, opening up for Ike and Tina Turner and Badfinger and Stevie Wonder. Um, and then having kind of hit after hit after hit after that. Um, but there were the ups and the, then the downs of the regular rock and roll band that weren't really supposed to survive longer than 10 years. But, you know, here we are talking about April Wine and their success. And there's still millions of streams on Spotify and millions of views on YouTube all these years later. Yeah, how do you explain that, that longevity? Um, time apart. Yeah. And really great songs, and not necessarily in that order. You know, the songs that Miles Goodwin wrote, everything from Just Between You and Me and Sign of the Gypsy Queen and Roller, um, there are songs that still hold up as just classic rock and roll, hummable songs that are easily so memorable. Mm -hmm. But it was also Miles's voice, too. You know, he looked like your average standard rock and roll dude in the 1970s wearing, you know, you know, an open shirt and long hair and frizz and all of that stuff. But the voice attracted the attention. I think that it, it didn't sound like the way that he looked. There was a, a tinge of, of, of kind of being authentic and sensitive. And that's what Miles loved about 
writing songs. You know, April Wine was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, and they were also inducted recently, like last month, in to Canada's Walk of Fame. But Miles was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I know that that acceptance as a songwriter meant more to him than I think all the other gold albums that he got was because he was able to write these songs in complete isolation or away from the world and the band and then putting them out there and having the entire world sing them back to you no matter where you were was the mark of greatness and Miles loved that idea as you heard in that clip that you know these songs are still getting played 40 50 years later mm-hmm. it's just a true testament to just the catchiness and and the the the, the beautifulness of, of rock and roll music and just his love too for we well, mentioned writing and I mean we can talk about him as a writer too because he wrote not just a memoir but he actually wrote a, a, a fictional book he wrote a novel uh, in 2018 but just his love of you know he he was um, he, he did blues music he had that acoustic trio that um, you know he was he was still performing with even as, as early as, as earlier this year so you know finding that that join other forms of music too but just you know the writing as well. Yeah, you know, going back to to Nova Scotia, like we were talking about, um, when he when he decided that he was kind of going to start putting the pieces in place for him to leave April Wine, at least in the live aspect of it, a, a number of years ago, um, one of the things that he did is he moved back to the East Coast from Montreal, and he wanted to get back to his family, wanted to get back to um, you know the the down homeness and you know the the easy way of of kind of living that the east coast offers and so he created an album called miles goodwin and friends of the blues um that got the juno nomination and also won the best blues award album uh at the east coast music awards and then he put together miles goodwin and friends of the blues too that also won the ecma but it was that ability for him to continue to write made it possible for him to go back in the East Coast. And the East Coast made it palatable for him to still want to write. I think he needed to get off of that rock and roll train. I think he needed to get off of the roller coaster and continue to be creative uh, in the world that had offered him the ability to do that, not really needing to write for money because those hits were, were still you know being played on the radio. But I think he loved writing. Yeah. You know, he wrote an amazing autobiography called Just Between You and Me. And that book that you mentioned, Elvis and, and Tiger, um, was really well received. So I think he could do it all. He could. And, you know, through it all, I mean, he just seemed so, I mean, humble, just kind of down to earth, just genuine. Yeah. I mean, you know what the business can do to people or the lifestyle. Um, but, you know, despite all those years of, of performing and touring, like it, it never seemed to change him in, in that way. No, and you know what did it for him? I think getting nominated for all of those Junos, I think it was 10 or 11, and not winning, and getting into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 2010, and then the Walk of Fame in 2023. No knock against any of those amazing organizations. But this band was going for a very long time before that. and. The hits happened well before that, like most bands do. Mm -hmm. And I get it. You get to a certain age, and if you can live long enough, you start to enter into the legendary status of your career, where people start giving you lifetime achievement awards. So I get all of that. But that 
does something to your ego. And what it does is it puts a pin in it to make you realize that there are still people, the real people who matter in Miles's case of the fans who still come out to the shows, who still go out and buy the records and listen to Spotify and watch the videos and stuff. So the industry kind of did him a little bit wrong yeah. by waiting so long, I think. And I know that Miles agrees with this because um, we talked about it on many occasions. So the that's where the lack of ego comes from. If he would have gotten all of the awards <laughs> and, you know, the big mansion and, you know, the billions of dollars, yeah, it it will do anybody's head. Sure. It will mess with anybody. But I think that because it came slowly and he never lost his Canadian heritage and, and stayed here, I think that, that made him more human than anybody had a right to expect from selling <laughs> 10 million albums. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, you got a great Right up, uh, as mentioned, at thatericalpert.com. Eric, uh, you know, condolences to, to all of Miles' family and, and friends, but uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. All the best. There you go. So that's uh, Eric Alper uh, was uh, Miles Goodwin's publicist. Uh, he's a, a music journalist and author as well. So an interesting overview of uh, Miles Goodwin, singer-songwriter, one of the founding members uh, of April Wine. And yeah, I had an opportunity a few times to speak with Miles. I remember the story from... Um, five-ish years ago, where, uh, you know, one of his uh, prized guitars, I think it was from, from the 1970s, had kind of gone missing during one of the tours and uh, tracked it down years later. Somebody had it and just, you know, getting that back and what it meant to him. Like there was that, that you know, uh, that kind of genuine sense of, okay, this guy is who he seems like he is. You know, there's no big ego or, you know, the, the kind of rock star craziness. It's just somebody who really cares about music and writing songs and what that means uh, to the people who consume it. It, it was interesting, too, in, in the conversation we had with him back in January where, you know, he announced that he was kind of leaving the band or wasn't going to perform or tour with the band anymore. And, you know, there's conversations uh, with his friends, with his bandmates about what it would mean for April Wine itself. When I decided not to work on the road with April Wine anymore, before I announced anything, uh, I went to uh, Brian Greenway, who has been in the band since 1977, yeah. uh, my right-hand guy. And I said, Brian, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, what do you want to do? Uh, because I don't want to continue without you, and uh, if you don't want to continue, well, that's fine with me. We'll just, you will just, uh, you shut her down. But he said no. He wanted to. He wanted to play. He wanted to continue playing. He feels uh, strong and excited, and, and wants to keep doing it. And then the other guys in the band uh, wanted the same thing. So there were three out of four of us that was going to decide to keep going. So I said, okay, well, let's let's get somebody that replaces me, and, and we'll carry on. So that's how we, uh, and this band is so good. And I'm not just saying that. The, the, the guy singing replaced me as singing guitar. Brian also sings leads, sings leads, and so does our drummer, Roy. But this, he, like, his singing is, he can sound just like me. It's, it's amazing. And he's a phenomenal guitar player and a great person. And uh, they've bonded really well as friends and also musically. So it, it's a really good band right now. The other thing we talked about at the time was, you know, what he would miss about stepping away from that. And also the question of whether there were some songs he would miss performing. And maybe there would be some songs that he wouldn't miss all that much. 
I'm going to miss the big stages, uh, the fans, the big audiences, the big amplifier, the big guitar, <laughs> the big sound. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to miss all of that because the only performing I'm doing right now is just an acoustic, uh, you know, uh, songs and uh, conversation kind of concerts, and they're they're acoustic and um, and I do some blues stuff after releasing a couple of blues albums that did very well, but the rock. Big rock shows. I, I guess. I guess I'm at the end of that uh, journey. Um, so I'll miss that. I'll miss. The, I'll miss the friends that I know only from the road. All those. All those people in the. Uh, all the other bands, members of the bands that I've known for years and years. We meet at airports. We meet in hotel lobbies, backstage. You know, all that jam with some of them. You know, I've known them for many, many, many years, and and I won't see them again. You know, I just know that this is the end of, of, of those relationships uh, as I've known it to be, right, in person. So, you know, that, that's, that's a hard one to take. You know, and, and I know that when it comes to the classic hits, and these are all kind of your babies, and, and so maybe this is an awkward question, but are, are there some that over the years you were really, like, excited to perform? Are there some where it kind of felt like, oh, you know, this one again? I don't know. How did you, What's your relationship with all of them? Well, most, mostly, you know, mostly I don't mind playing any of them. There are yeah. a couple of songs that we've done that I just do not like to do, and I try to avoid them. Because I like to have fun up there, and our, our, our set usually represents all songs that are fun, but we also have to play what the fans want. Right. Uh, you know, that's the same with any band, you know, and uh, so we have to, certain songs we have to do, but there, there are a few of them that, uh, you know, you don't, you don't care for, uh, like Bad Side of the Moon, might surprise people. I don't like to play that song. <laughs> I don't like the singer play it, uh, but people really like it, so we pull it in and out of the set, but generally we, uh, we like what we play, or we wouldn't play it. Yeah. So you go. That was uh, from January, a conversation we had with Miles Goodwin when he asked he was uh, stepping away from performing and touring with the band. But it's a little surreal now because as we sort of look back and reflect on his legacy and career and the impact of the band to sort of hear him doing the same, it, it certainly has a different context uh, with news of his passing yesterday. So definitely someone will be missed, but definitely someone who will be remembered, that's for sure. I want to circle back to the conversation around primary care in Alberta, uh, the fact that uh, not enough Albertans have access uh, to a family doctor and then the trickle-down impact that has through the system. The Alberta government is taking steps to try to address that, and it sounds like more is coming in terms uh, of a new agreement with doctors. Uh, but to fill some of the gap, the Alberta government recently announced that uh, they will empower nurse practitioners Uh, to try to incentivize them to set up clinics and to take on patients, arguing that uh, nurse practitioners can do most of, not all, obviously, but most of, they say, what family doctors can do. So that's one way of of trying to address the problem. Uh, But what more could be done? And how does Canada stack up against other countries? There's an interesting new study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that takes a closer look at that finds that Canada lags far behind most OECD countries in terms of access to primary care, and that other countries just take a a different approach when it comes to prioritizing this uh, and devoting resources to this. So is there something Canada can take from that? Are there other experiences in other countries that maybe we could apply here? Well, joining us to talk more about some of these issues, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. One of the authors of this study, Dr. Tara Kieran, is uh, Chair in Improvement and Innovation at the University of Toronto, Vice Chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine, also practicing in family medicine. Uh, Dr. Tara Kieran, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks for having me. So let's talk first of all about how Canada stacks up against other OECD countries. If we look at the metric of the number of Canadians who do not have, you know, an assigned primary care physician, what does that look like compared to some of these other countries? Yeah, so I mean, we knew that even before the pandemic started, we were in trouble. And now some of the latest data we have is that more than one in five adults in Canada don't have access to primary care. And contrast that to some of the other countries we looked at where, you know, more than 95% of the population has regular access to primary care. So these include countries like uh, Norway, the Netherlands, Finland, UK, and, and many others. So these countries we found, they um, prioritize access to primary care. They actually uh, require or uh, automatically register people to a primary care clinician or practice. Uh, and they actually spend more money on primary care. So really, to us, the, the main point for me was that they prioritize it much more than we do. Uh, and I would assume then, maybe, does that mean they have more doctors or more primary care doctors uh, on a per capita basis than Canada does? Really interesting question. So we looked at that, and actually we found that the number of general practitioners or family doctors per capita was similar in Canada to many of the other countries. Uh, that have more access to primary care. But what actually stood Canada apart are two two things. So one is that we actually uh, have fewer overall physicians in these other countries. And mm-hmm. and so one of the things that this brings out is that our uh, when we're counting general practitioners and family doctors in Canada, we're actually counting people who are working in other parts of the system. And because I think we have fewer family doctors, my theory is that so many of our, 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 our sorry, so because we have fewer doctors overall, many of the family doctors we do have are forced to work in other parts of the system. They end up working in, in emergency departments and hospitals because we just don't have the capacity among our physician groups to serve those things otherwise. And so then um, when we're counting general practitioners, we're actually counting people who are not actually practicing family practice. In terms of, you know, the the benefits of focusing on primary care, what what do these countries see then as the payoff from from having that that specific focus on primary care? How does that affect the rest of the system? Yeah, it's a good question, and we need to um, better untangle and understand that. But I would say... Uh, a few things. So for one, I think it just means that the population is better served and has a better experience of care because we know the front door of the healthcare system is primary care and people right now in Canada are just so frustrated because they don't know where to turn. So I, I suspect it just means a better experience of care. But then fundamentally, I think it also translates to health. So it means people uh, are more likely to get the preventive care they need, the chronic condition management. And there have been studies that have shown that, you know, when areas have more primary care, there are actually better health outcomes overall, lower mortality, better equity between different populations, and actually lower costs. Right. And that's an interesting point, because even though these countries do spend more per capita on primary care, a greater percentage of healthcare spending is on primary care, does that mean that they necessarily spend more on health care overall than Canada? Yeah, so we actually didn't find that they're necessarily spending more on, on the total health budget. It's how they're spending the total health budget. So they're spending a greater proportion on primary care than we are. And really importantly, too, they're actually spending more of it um, in, in the public system as opposed to the private system. So Canada actually had the lowest a proportion of health spending that was public among all of these nine countries. Um, and, and so that means that things like, me- so we're thinking about things like mental health care, uh, pharma care, 
uh, dental care, all of those things are covered, are more likely to be covered in many of these other countries. And so what happens is that the burden of managing these issues falls to family doctors. Uh, our population isn't able to stay as well because those services are not covered. And so it stretches our workforce and, and causes even further access issues. So I think that's part of the equation here. So, I mean, you know, these different countries have different healthcare systems, right? And Canada's system's different in, in some ways. I mean, you know, we don't have a national healthcare system, you know, like the UK does, for example. Uh, even the relationship between family physicians and the healthcare system, that, that might be unique as well. So, I mean, what needs to change in Canada here? Yeah, it's a really great point. I mean, we do have different structures. We're also really close to the United States. And so I think that changes kind of the way that we think about care. Um, uh, we were really close to a country that um, doesn't have universal access and where doctors are uh, and, and prices in general are very high. Um, so what does need to be done differently? I mean, I think we have to set the goal of 100% attachment to primary care. So that means not saying like, oh, a little bit better is okay, like 85 to 90%. We have to say that 100% of people deserve to have primary care and design our system in that way. Um, and that would mean redesigning things. So uh, it, it may mean bringing doctors more into the system. So many of them are small business owners right now mm -hmm. and have very little accountability to where they practice their hours. And we need to do a better job bringing them into the system, organizing things like after hours care in a way that's really logical, both for patients and for clinicians. And fundamentally, we uh, need to spend more on primary care. That means spending uh, for example, to increase inter other health professionals, um, changing the way doctors are paid, uh, in increasing uh, the infrastructure uh, so that primary care can work better. Um, uh, so, because we see, you know, in some of these other places, for example, when you are a, some, you know, moved to UK, the UK, you're guaranteed access to a primary care cl clinic that's in your neighborhood. When you, you know, grow up in Finland, you're automatically registered to a clinic. And in Norway, you're actually automatically registered to a physician. You have choice. You can actually move around if you want to. But you don't have this hassle of having to find a doctor and then not being able to. And right now in Canada, that's the number one problem. We have haves and have-nots, and we really need to change that. Right. And despite, you know, the differences, as noted, with the Canadian healthcare system, is, is that achievable? Could we do that here if there was the will? I think we can actually. I think that we have to set the goal. Um, what I've, you know, in addition to this paper that we've published today, um, we've been working with um, patients and members of the public across Canada to see what it is that they want, and everyone is unanimously in favor of this 100% guarantee of primary care. Everyone deserves it. They want to see team-based care expanded. They want to see, you know, one, an access to a single medical record where they can look up all their information. That's the kind of thing these other countries have as well. It increases the efficiency. So I think it's doable. These other, and the point of this paper partly was to say, look, these other countries have done it. Yes, they have. There's some things that are different about them, but there are definitely lessons we can learn and apply here too. Well, if anyone wants to read that paper, it's up at cmaj.ca. Dr. Kieran, thank you so much. Make some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate your insight on this. Thank you for having me. Here's a question to ponder. Do you own or have you ever considered the idea of a so-called winter beater? As our next guest writes, if ever a term belonged in a Canadian dictionary, this is it. Look, okay, winter temperatures, winter driving can be hard on our vehicles. So the idea of having a vehicle that you just drive in the winter... 
knowing that it's going to get a little more beaten up than your fair weather, maybe more preferred vehicle, that there's a certain amount of logic in that to a lot of people. So that's where the idea of the concept came from. You buy a vehicle that takes the pounding and the beating in the winter, uh, and you save maybe your better vehicle, uh, your nicer vehicle for the uh, nicer weather. So that's the idea. But does it actually make financial sense to have those separate vehicles? Can you make the math work? What are the pros and the cons of this approach? There's a great uh, deep dive on, on all of this you can read at driving.ca. Uh, joining us for more, very pleased to welcome in the program uh, here this afternoon, Brian Turner, longtime contributor at driving.ca, veteran of the automotive repair world, and the Monday morning or the Monday uh, afternoon motoring Monday contributor on the drive here on QR Calgary. Brian, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. I mean, the idea of a winter beater, I mean, this is not new, obviously, but do we know how far back, I mean, where that term came from or how long that concept has been around? Well, I think it goes back decades yeah. uh, when when the first, you know, brand new vehicle owner did not want to uh, push their chrome shining uh, paint gleaming uh, showroom purchase out into an ugly Canadian winter. And uh, it continues. And when you look at the logic, the logic works both ways. Um, yes, you can say that, uh, you know, if you buy a second car, uh, uh, you know, an older vehicle, maybe it's 8, 9, 10 years old, you can uh, extend the life of the brand new one that you want to keep in pristine condition by maybe long enough to make the financial picture work. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, in most cases, you're giving up a lot of features and benefits that are, are designed to protect you in the worst weather. And and some people will say, well, why would you risk yourself on on the worst the worst roads that Mother Nature can throw at us in a 10-year-old Toyota Corolla or Honda Civic or whatever your favorite beater is uh, and uh, make it a white-knuckle drive every day? Well, that's the thing. I mean, in, you know, in the winter months, you want a reliable vehicle or even a, you know, a newer vehicle that might have some of those uh, features, the safety features, even the features that, that kind of keep us warm and cozy. But, I mean, again, the point of the, having the winter beater is the, the recognition that, that winter driving, winter temperatures are hard on vehicles. But tell us a bit more about, you know, the impact of winter and winter driving. Well, number one is collision risk right off the bat. We all know that every time we go out on snow-laden roads, you know, the, the risk of a collision, whether it be a minor fender bender or a major one, climb dramatically. We also know that for every day that your vehicle spends in a salt-laden and a water-laden and a snow-laden environment, rust will, you know, do its toll. And that's what makes it hard to find a winter beater in worth, in worthwhile condition. And I always tell people, if you're looking at buying, you know, an eight or nine or 10 year old vehicle, um, make sure you get it thoroughly inspected first. There's some corrosion you can repair. There's some cosmetic corrosion you can live with. And there's some corrosion that absolutely relegates that vehicle to the boneyard. No question about it. Yeah, and there's the reality right now. I think there's been some improvement when it comes to, to vehicle affordability, but we've seen a spike in prices. So realistically, Brian, if someone's looking at a so-called winter beater, but something that provides some level of reliability, I mean, what, what are folks looking at? Well, number one, look at uh, nothing older than 10 years of age or with more than 250,000 kilometers on it. That is 
uh, the quiet, unofficial time and mileage frame that most manufacturers design their vehicles to last. Doesn't mean you won't see cars on the road for 15 or 20 years because of a careful, uh, very uh, keen owner who's great on maintenance. Doesn't mean you won't see these vehicles relegated to the scrap heap long before that time uh, comes up. But the 10-year, 250,000-kilometer mark is, is where you want to stay away from anything older or higher in mileage than that. And I also... Uh, probably going to take a little heat from my friends in the four-wheel drive world. I don't necessarily recommend four-wheel drive uh, for a winter beater uh, because you're carrying extra cost to buy it right off the bat. If, you, you know, if you're looking at a four-wheel drive versus a front-wheel drive, you're going to be paying more money. You're also going to be running more risk for maintaining all that running gear. Um, and uh, I've always told people, and I this is from a person, my, I used to have a full-time job at... Uh, the uh, Jeep plant in Brampton, Ontario, and uh, and I always tell people four wheel drive really only gets you into trouble twice as fast and twice as far as two wheel drive. Is that right? Uh, so and and like I mean, you still even if you got a winter beater, you still want to make sure again, like you know, as you say, some of those reliability issues. So you still want to be probably, I would imagine, looking at winter tires, right? Absolutely, no question. You're still going to want, like, if you're if you're buying a vehicle of, of in that age range, the older ones, you can expect right off the bat if you want it to deliver safe, reliable winter transportation, you're going to be looking at you know a, a good set of winter tires. You want to have it thoroughly inspected. Probably a battery may need to be replaced, and you know a general uh, check over of the engine uh, and running gear, uh, steering and suspension. You want to make sure is in excellent condition because. Canadian roads in the wintertime uh, really don't do us any favors, and they're not very forgiving on vehicles that are less than perfect. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I do wonder, too, I mean, you know, there, there is the, you know, the cost of sort of having those two vehicles and, you know, you're driving one but not the other. What about the insurance there? Because I guess then you're sort of switching over your insurance, but what's the impact of, of doing this? Depends on how how flexible your insurance policy is. If you're if you are going to park a vehicle uh, for six or seven months, it makes sense to talk to your insurance agent to find out what kind of impact that can have. Because you're certainly not putting it at risk in a collision. And if you're storing it in a garage or a, uh, a heated storage facility, they should be able to provide you some financial incentive to uh, to make the change. Keep in mind, you're also going to have to insure the vehicle you do put on the road to replace it. Winter beaters, as it was, because they have less um, wholesale or retail value in, in the event of a total loss, you'll find it's much cheaper to insure, for example, a $10,000 used car versus a $70,000 brand-new SUV. Right. I mean, that part's obvious. But then if we get back to, you know, with the, the various safety features, like, I mean, does that factor in if, if an auto insurance company says, okay, I get that you've got uh, this other newer, more expensive vehicle, but that one's probably less likely to get in a collision. Does that kind of risk assessment factor in? Well, they are, but keep in mind, insurance companies really only look at the statistics, the bottom line. And what a lot of people are finding with all this collision mitigation, these uh, automatic braking systems, these automatic lane assist systems, they work great in California in the summertime. But on our winter roads, these uh, lane, uh, for example, lane-keeping assist systems 
can't see the lane lines, can't see the dotted line if it's covered in snow. Just like those collision mitigation sensors at the front of the vehicle aren't going to be worth anything when they're covered in ice and snow, just like your your backup sensors in, in, in the back of the vehicle. So insurance companies, yes, they look at safety records, but they also look at the statistics. And uh, I, I don't think you're going to find that as it, uh, when you look at the, the end result, let's say a, a long-term look at how collision mitigation has fared, it's not going to really provide a lot better assistance in winter roads. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you point out in your piece, I mean, for some people, it's kind of a necessity. I mean, you know, obviously, there are those who have motorcycles in the summer. Well, obviously, they need something in the winter. But, you know, people like convertibles, they're probably going to need something in the winter. So there, there are some people uh, that, that kind of have to do this. Absolutely. Um, there are a lot of vehicles that just, you know, and manufacturers will be right up front. We never designed these to be driven down the highway at minus 30 in a blizzard. Um, so it's it's worth taking a look at. Fortunately, the used vehicle market is getting a little bit more relaxed during the, the pandemic and during the supply chain breakdowns. We all saw used vehicle prices just skyrocket. And uh, people were driving five- and six-year-old vehicles back onto the dealer lot for a trade-in and getting more allowance than they paid for them originally. Your latest, as mentioned, is up at driving.ca. Get an overview of all the pros and cons of the winter beater approach. Brian, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Safe driving, everyone. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Brian Turner. Uh, you know him, of course, uh, as the Motoring Monday expert on, on the drive, uh, veteran columnist at driving.ca, and a veteran of the automotive repair world. So, yeah, I mean, you can make it work. You know, it's not necessarily for everyone, and I guess some some different factors you might want to consider if you're going to take this approach. I think a lot of people buy a vehicle sort of with winter in mind. But, yeah, I mean, maybe if you've got a vehicle that's better suited to summer months, maybe this kind of approach works good for you. Maybe it could make sense. Uh, some of the text coming in this one says, Rob, most of the people I know use their newer vehicle as their winter driver and have a 70s or an older summer sunny day cruiser. Right, that's an interesting point. So it's not necessarily a winter beater, uh, but you know, it's it's two separate vehicles. Basically, one for the the crappy weather, one for the nice weather. Uh, someone else says my winter beater is a two thousand four Envoy with over four hundred thirty thousand kilometers. Uh, impressive. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.